So those of you who were here last Monday know the topic of the Dharma talk tonight. And bear with me if there's going to be a little bit of a repetition for those of you who have arrived. And so I noticed that it's difficult to talk about the last three factors without mentioning the three first ones. But I also think that the Dhamma is inspiring and that we can never hear it enough. (laughs) And even if we are um, hearing aspects that we have heard before, well, just notice what the mind does with that. And really uh, take interest if there's boredom, or if there's joy. I find it really, truly inspiring to prepare a Dharma talk. And it is just so helpful to remember that we're all in it together. And as I'm sharing the Dharma, it's really, um, as I was reflecting just a few moments ago, how it's just such a great service to the world and that your practice, just like mine, is the same. And there's a way that we are sharing this um, possibility, potential, of really meeting ourselves in a way that we can realize the truth. I'm going to do something here. Should help. (laughs) So, we are really realizing something very, very powerful. And it happens when we simplify our practice. And I was just noticing and reflecting again and again how, in my own practice, and how I can hear. some of you, and how we're trying to understand through the ways of complexity. And that's because the mind really tries to figure it out instead of just allowing the meeting of what is. And it's normal that this is happening. And when it happens, we just need to be patient and to notice that it's part of the process So we are activating our potential for waking up, especially in circumstances like this one, really allowing the mind to free itself from grasping is a very, very incredible, powerful task. And yet, it's not easy, but it is the path of simplicity that we need to remember. So this teaching of the seven factors of awakening is totally linked to the foundation of mindfulness. And it's one aspect or a part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Just like we notice, probably for some of us, the hindrances or the difficult afflictive emotions, the torments of the mind, which are also an aspect of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, we are able and we have the capacity to meet these qualities that will enable one to see underneath the surface. Why are they so 
potentially powerful because they allow us to understand, to really have this potential of wisdom that is available. And what do we understand? We understand the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. There is a total link in our practice here. So it's not that this teaching is isolated in any way, but it's dependent on conditions. And when we understand what brings suffering and we understand what is the cause of that suffering, and we also are able to see what frees the mind from suffering, the third noble truth, we can engage in a way that we can meet the Dhamma. And everything becomes Dhamma then. So here we are, putting ourselves in the fire. (laughs) And when I say fire, it's a joyful fire of um, really allowing ourselves to enable this incredibly powerful encounter to enable the truth to be seen. This is a quotation from Gilek Rinpoche, a Tibetan Rinpoche. He says, the capability of human life is beyond our imagination. This capability is unique. What counts is the human capacity to investigate and transform our own mind and the world around us in a powerful and positive direction. That's exactly what we're doing here. Connecting in such a deep way to what is and really inclining the mind towards positive, towards a direction that only affects us but will affect the world. So how does this transformation happen? Well, it manifests through and with the activation of certain positive qualities that, I remind you, lie within us. They are present, whether we know it or not, whether they are activated or not, they're present. They are really here. They're not coming from another space or another planet or another person. (laughs) These forces which are called mindfulness, the ability to know experience just as it is, moment after moment, is the capacity that enables us to see clearly. We really allow ourselves to see beneath the surface of all our assumptions, concepts, ideas, judgments that we have about ourselves, about the practice, about others, about the world. This is so powerful. And this mindfulness, and I said this last week, but I will repeat it because it's really so important. This mindfulness is the cause for more mindfulness. It is really as simple as that, that if we are interested in being mindful, then we 
notice and we allow the ripening of other qualities in the heart and mind. And they are inherent to this nature of mind and body. So I talked about the three energetic or rosing qualities that are investigation, energy, or effort. You'll notice that I use the word energy, but you can also notice the word effort, and joy or rapture. So in the investigation of the dhammas, just of the phenomena, external and internal, we connect with. Investigation is that ability to penetrate beneath the concepts and to explore what is emerging when there's interest. There's this powerful possibility of lightening up what has been laying in the dark. And it doesn't matter. There's a beautiful teaching that says you can have been in ignorance or sleeping for a thousand years The moment there's a candle that lights up the space that we're in, there's a possibility of awakening. It doesn't matter if we've been asleep for a long time or if we've had moments of disconnection. What matters is the moment that we are here, present, awake. That's what counts. That's what allows the wisdom to arise. This is a quotation from Nisargadatta Maharaj in a beautiful book that's called I Am That. He says, by being with yourself, that's what we're doing here, we're really being with ourselves. By watching yourself in your practice with alert interest, with the intention to understand rather than to judge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, in full acceptance of whatever may emerge, whatever, because it is there, you encourage the deep to come to the surface and enrich your life and consciousness with its captive energies. This is the great work of awareness. It removes obstacles. Awareness removes obstacles and releases energies by understanding the nature of life and mind. Wisdom is the door to freedom. And alert attention, which I call here mindfulness, is the mother of wisdom. So we really allow this process of emergence, of wakefulness, of alert attention, to understand the nature of life, this life your life, nature of mind. Now, this mindfulness and investigation will give rise to energy and to a strength of heart or courage. There's no doubt about it, that when you really see for yourself and there's interest, 
there's a very natural energy that comes up. It's not forced. It's not an energy that's born out of willpower. I should be present. There's just an energy that comes up, which is born from a willingness to meet the truth because of the power of wisdom. That power of wisdom really inclines the mind, and the mind is quite cooperative. It says, oh, seeing the truth really enables understanding. And from that energy linked with mindfulness and investigation, there's a possibility of clarity. And that clarity is uplifting the mind. There's joy. There's rapture. In a way, you can say that there's delight in seeing the truth. And it doesn't matter what we're meeting. That's exactly why it's so difficult to really connect and to say, oh, not this, but that, yes. That's what we do, right? A selective mind that constantly has preferences. But if you allow that deep connection of mindfulness and investigation leading to energy and joy, it's really arising independently of what the content is, of whatever it is that is happening. And we've all had experiences like this where there's (laughs) anger and sadness and restlessness or boredom or even doubt. And there are moments where that is what is happening in the mind, and yet we're able to stay with it, stabilizing and connecting. So these mind states don't hinder the quality of awareness. And that's what seeing the truth means. They don't hinder quality of awareness. It's totally possible to be aware, and the capacity of the mind is to stay present. What will change is that when there's just awareness and that there isn't the overlay of reactivity because we don't like what we're seeing, then it's possible that we free ourselves from grasping. The reason why there isn't a pure awareness is there often is a really strong tendency towards reactivity where we start bargaining in our practice, wanting to get rid of of the anger or really noticing that we're noticing the anger and we're noticing it with aversion. What's the relationship? It's really important to look then that there's an aversion towards that mind state Or maybe there's a greediness that comes because we want a peaceful state, and it's not calm. It's not peaceful. So seeing those moods in the mind as passing states, the greed, the aversion, are really helpful because the awareness in those moments is tainted by the greed and the aversion. And to really 
allow ourselves to connect. What does aversion feel like? What does boredom feel like? From that place of mindfulness investigation and there's energy, you'll see that there's momentum in the practice and there's interest and that those really unpleasant mind states are not that unpleasant just because there's a power of mindfulness. And if they are, it's okay. We're allowing ourselves to feel the unpleasantness. And it contributes to really allowing the the joy or the ease or the comfort. And so that joy is nourished by ease, by interest. But it's also possible that there's a sense that when there's kind of a a possibility of joy and really staying with the experience, that it can transform into rapture and that rapture loses balance. There is kind of a, a feeling tone of excitement of, oh, this is really interesting. And that interesting thing really transforms into excitement. And I've, I've seen that so much in my practice. For other people, it's a lot of sloth and torpor, that, that the mind is really dull, and it goes towards uh, the side of, oh, uh, when we're out of balance, it's the opposite state of sloth and torpor, dullness. For me, it's exactly the contrary. I often go to agitation, restlessness, and that's where I need to watch out for the practice where I get out of balance. So if already we know the tendency for ourselves, it's helpful to just watch for what is the tendency um, energetically when we lose balance. I remember that um, in my early practice, I was doing a lot of practice with Sayadaw Pandita, as you know, and um, one day <laughs> I went in and I was just so excited about the practice and wanted really to share that I totally forgot about the bows. <laughs> I wasn't used to it. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and I started talking, and I forgot to put my hands in Anjali, which is like this, out of a sense of respect. I mean, there was so much excitement about what was happening in the practice. <laughs> and I said, oh, Saido, I've seen this and I've seen that. <laughs> and he just looked at me, with his most severe look, and he says, you are not cultivating peace. Please <laughs> cultivate peace. <laughs> and he was just expressing that I was really too excited. Of course, I had totally forgot all the, <laughs> the ritual. And um, I said, peace. <laughs> you know, in this moment, I mean, this was really early on. What was that about? <laughs> And I said, oh, how do I do that? (laughs) Still completely excited. (laughs) And he just told me, just care for mindfulness, of course. (laughs) Stay present, notice the excitement. And mindfulness will just take care of that energetic state. And I didn't quite believe it. (laughs) I thought, oh, that can't be. But 
of course, I would really trust his guidance, which is a big help if you trust the guidance of your teacher. And so very uh, clearly in the next sitting, I was just, okay, mindfulness, meaning noticing the excitement. And sure enough, there was a tranquilizing factor there, which really brought in some balance. And it happens in the moment. It's not something that, okay, now I've got the recipe and I know all the ingredients. And it really is a momentary arising. That in the moment when we see the truth, ah, there's a possibility there of connecting and we'll lose it again. But there's kind of what Miyoshin talked about is the data, right? There's information, and that was totally a right information for me, which really brought understanding towards right view of, oh, when it happens again, there's a knowing and the ability, capacity of the mind to remember and to watch out for that particular arising. So we favor the balance of these factors of awakening. And tranquility is the next one. Tranquility often comes after we've experienced some ease, just like what I described. Ease in the body, ease in the mind. Now, we can't fabricate tranquility. (laughs) It's something that you can't make manifest. It really is through the nourishment of all these previous factors that tranquility will arrive. Of course we want tranquility. And yet, we often miss it. It says in the text that tranquility is like the cool shade of a tree to a person who has been in the hot sun there is a soothing effect on the mind. There's a way that it emerges when we really relax in the moment. And it often happens when we've tried everything else (laughs) and we've really given ourselves to try to control, try to avoid, bring a little bit of tension here, you know, attention there, um, noticing wanting, and then we, ah, so tired, (laughs) of doing, that we surrender (laughs) to the moment. And you may notice that, ah, that's when tranquility kicks in. It's wonderful when we can realize that that's exactly what is happening. (laughs) But it's hard. I mean, it's pretty difficult for people to appreciate that quality of calm because we're still energetically influenced by the previous happenings. And energetically, it's still maybe a little bit tensed. And the mind is very quick at getting calm. Okay, nothing is happening. It's, oh, but it's not nothing is happening. That's what we think. And so often we 
are misguided and we mistaken tranquility for boredom. So much of the time when we hear, oh, there's so much boredom. (laughs) Well, watch what is really happening. Boredom and tranquility or calm, for me at least, are very close. And yet they're completely different. Calm or tranquility is a positive quality where there's a resting of the mind, a possibility of really receiving. Boredom is a form of aversion. There's definitely a sense of disconnection. So we are here welcoming the possibility of receiving experience so that you can really notice and also give the time for that energetic shift to happen that we allow the residual tension to really kind of pass. Atancha says this, try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. That's really the quality of tranquility. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. so beautiful, stepping in the coolness of the shade to see all these wonderful happenings in the mind, and yet the mind is stilled. So tranquility can come with the flow of changing experiences. For such a long time, I thought in my practice that that particular quality And I held this belief quite strongly in the mind that for stillness to be present, there was a need for everything to stop. Like, (laughs) even the breath, maybe. (laughs) You know, that idea that everything should come to a halt, to a standpoint. Like, no breeze, no noise, (laughs) nothing externally or internally. And it's not what we're talking about. Really, tranquility comes in the changing flow of our experience. What is happening here is that it's the mindfulness, the awareness that is tranquil. There's a possibility for the mind to relax and rest in the present. That is the stillness. It's not about the objects that are stilling. The breath will always be moving. I mean, just an example. But the mindfulness is just stabilizing. And that can happen maybe for just a few seconds. And as we practice, we'll notice that that those few seconds are prolonged. 
this is a really consistent shift in the way that we relate to what is happening. And so tranquility may rise and like any other state, it may go. And we can't have it come back just like that, (laughs) even though we'd like that. It's a process. A teacher, I can't remember which teacher, but one of my teachers really said to me, you just need to show up for everything. You just need to show up for everything. But then the secret is that you need to get out of the way. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? We need to be really fully present and then allow the conditions to be what they are. Getting out of the way meaning not trying this, not trying that in the sense of trying to improve or get rid of, allow the process to really happen. So mindfulness is present as these factors are really encouraged. So when we get out of the way, what happens? We're just less interested in doing. Doing causes agitation. It causes agitation and restlessness in the mind and in the body. Now we are so habituated to do. Just in our life, we're constantly doing. And so it's really interesting to learn and to be interested in what does it mean to not do something in my practice? Well, it really means not wanting to change experience. And that's exactly how so often we get entangled or there's reactivity because we're trying to change experience. And so that if there's aversion or anger or frustration, meet that. What does frustration look like? What does it feel like? And so it's possible then from that mindfulness, which is tranquil, that that stability of mindfulness will allow us to really meet even the unpleasant mind states of frustration, and just to see it for what it is. It's not personal. They don't belong to any solid identity, solid me or I. So a moment of calm is not dependent on nothing is happening. A moment of calm is just mindfulness enabling to be really quite stable. 
And what it means is that there is simply a non-judging acceptance. And that's one of the, the factors of mindfulness, to really enable acceptance. Just, oh, this is it. This is what it is. This is what it is. And this too. And this too. And we'll move. You know, we'll be able to uh, meet that consistently for some time, and then we'll lose it. Okay, it's fine. We'll lose the balance. But then there are other moments, there's again a possibility of interest, and tranquility is happening again. One of the profound realizations came from Deepama, that woman that I talked about last week, which is an Indian woman who was extraordinarily realized as a yogi and who was teaching in Calcutta. And I, she came to IMS actually in 1980 and 84 during the three-month course. I don't know if you were one of the fortunate beings to uh, be there, but I wasn't. But I heard a lot about her through different friends. And fortunately, one day, I was flying from Bangkok to Delhi, and we had a technical problem with the airplane, and it landed in Calcutta. And after a few indications, we really got it that we were going to have a layover of 24 hours. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. I'm going to get to see Deepama. (laughs) One aim (laughs) with my... (laughs) extreme excited (laughs) mind (laughs) and so I didn't have the address then but I found it and it was just so extraordinary going in her apartment building and I thought oh she can't live here this is really so simple I mean it was just such a simple (laughs) um, apartment house and um, of course I had ideas and Yes, she was living upstairs, and this is the place. It was really quite a small place, and she had received many, many hundreds of students. And when I arrived there in the apartment, I was told that she was practicing in silence during her mealtime, and that I could still go in the room and pay my respects to her. And I was so happy that I could already do that. I thought, okay, this is, you know, karma, but it's great. I'm just going to be receiving whatever. And as I was moving towards her place and her room, I really felt that quality of energy totally shift. It was just so amazing how um, a wave of calm and deep, deep peace came from her room just extraordinary. And she had her back to me, so she was facing her altar, and so I came here, and she definitely couldn't see me. But as I was really kind of sitting and doing my bows towards her and receiving that (laughs) wave of energy, I really noticed that tears came but a lot of tears. It was just like probably uh, some held-up tension or emotion was present there, and it was just released. 
because my mind was happy <laughs> and I was completely calm, but it was just like this extreme energetic shift that happened. And I wasn't making any noise at all, but I could sense that she knew what was happening there. I mean, she didn't need to see people to know what was happening. <laughs> and she turned her head very softly and just said to me, it's okay, it's okay, with this, such a loving voice that brought so much peace and concentration, that calm and that really wave of coolness. Um, as she was doing that, and I was really receiving kind of the blessing of her complete peacefulness and power, I also received her concentration. And it was just like, <laughs> whoa, you know, um, not only calm, but a great strength of steadiness, stability, like that energy was really settled. And it was just so beautiful to have that manifest in me from the encounter with another person. And it it just opens the heart and mind so much so that afterwards I was kind of floating (laughs) in the streets of Calcutta for the rest of my day there and was blessed with this love. And so what she was saying is that you have the power and every one of us has the power to practice. Yet it's so important to relate to what is happening with care, with love. And that's exactly what I received, is that powerful, not only concentration piece, but the caring. And the caring is a big piece that we might not tend to receive. It's not only mindfulness. It's mindfulness with care, with love, whatever you want to call it. And so it brings us to that steadiness. Calm brings to the steadiness and to what is called the next factor of awakening, which is concentration. Very spontaneously, there's a collectedness. There's kind of a unifying state, and that's what I really sensed. It's like everything was unified, and there was no fragment, and it was just, not only was mindfulness landing on whatever it was receiving, but there was a possibility of resting in the present moment. And that's what concentration does in a very relaxed way. It's relaxation, again, really relaxing into the present moment and caring for what is happening that will emphasize that possibility of steadiness, reinforcing just the calm. So we often wonder how concentration manifests. And I know that for myself, I've had so many yogis ask, you know, we want concentration. We really (laughs) 
crave <laughs> for concentration. Um, thinking that that's the end of the path. And it's very fascinating in that in so many sutras, there's an understanding of that. And thank goodness for us that the Buddha <laughs> didn't get trapped <laughs> by that extraordinary quality of concentration and that he had teachers which brought him to that state, right? I mean, we know if you've read some of the teaching that he had had teachers and he said, ah, but this isn't really the end of suffering. I can notice, you know, there's more to it on this path. This is not the end. And he kept on looking and he really kept on seeking which is extraordinary. How many paths, you know, a lot of spiritual paths bring to the sense of unity and collectedness and and peace in the mind. Where, yes, maybe the hindrances are put to the side. They are momentarily not present. One of my teachers says, they're just suppressed. (laughs) And it's true. I've seen it for myself. If we really want the end of suffering, it's important not to stop there, which means that we don't only put whatever is unpleasant at bay or just on the side momentarily, but there is an understanding that we need to uproot the forces that bring suffering. And only wisdom can do that. So yes, mindfulness with concentration will help us. It's just a stepping stone towards wisdom. So no need to strive for concentration. If you are a person that likes to strive, (laughs) go for wisdom. (laughs) Much more interesting. (laughs) Now, yes, there is a point here which is important to really see the truth like what I expressed before is that we do need a certain um, quality of presence. And we can say that concentration is helpful. But the concentration that I've recently nourished, thanks to my teacher, Saida Utijaniya, (laughs) is extraordinary because it doesn't need to manifest exclusively on the cushion or in a situation like this one. Concentration, of course, will naturally emerge in a situation where we are so uh, restrained in a way, right? There's a lot of renunciation happening here. And therefore, it's totally natural that concentration will come. Yet, it's dependent on these conditions. Don't you agree? Yeah. (laughs) The concentration that I've come to see and meet with this form of practice that we've been talking about a little bit is that it comes and it's really a strength of mind 
that comes from the continuity of mindfulness. So we practice in a relaxed way, not striving for anything, opening to what is, really allowing a very great dedication to interest and meeting experience moment after moment. And he's very clear about this. I didn't know the expression, but uh, another teacher said, 24-7, <laughs> which means that I, I think, what did you say? <laughs> and then, I thought, oh, oh, every moment, yeah. <laughs> so that's exactly, and I think it's really hitting the mind. It's like really all the time to really notice the moment you're up to the moment you're um, going to bed out of a sense of interest, not from a forceful will, but, ah, just... What is it to be present? How can I incline the mind to see clearly what is happening? Oh, this is greed. How can I be interested in greed? Wow, this is what is happening. Just this morning, a person said, oh, I didn't want to come in the hall. There was boredom. And then I saw, oh, there's aversion to boredom. But then there was an interest because of the mindfulness that was really kicking in, mindfulness leading to understanding. So that is really the kind of concentration, meaning that we stabilize the mindfulness that will lead one to wisdom. And the great secret here is that we can do it everywhere because we don't need specific circumstances. And of course, these are circumstances. I'm not saying that we don't need to come to retreat anymore, but um, it's a blessing when we can. But, you know, how many weeks do we have that are available for retreat time? And therefore, it's possible to bring the practice in daily life in this way. Now, this type of concentration, which really manifest moment after moment really allows for gladness and joy to emerge in the mind. There's a lightness of heart. It really uplifts the concentration and the mind. I've noticed for myself that I've always had kind of a, a, a pulling back to the concentration that is focused one-pointedly on experience that is the mind is so focused on an object or an, even an other object because there was a sense of tension. And when I realize now, almost always, like tension about enough concentration, not enough, uh, really kind of worried <laughs> about that aspect in the practice when there's absolutely nothing to worry about. And so why was I worried? And I really saw this not so long ago, is that it was always a kind of worry around concentration because I knew for myself that often concentration can be kind of a dullness in the mind. You know how we talk about sinking mind? Where it's, 
yeah, the mind is concentrated, but there's no aliveness. And that's not the concentration that will lead to wisdom. So to keep it up, like to, to really <laughs> not have it, it being dull, I needed to bring this um, quality of aliveness, but that held tension. And I'm sharing this for you because in this uh, way of relating to practice with more spaciousness, just more spaciousness, I think, um, and interest, there's a totally different way of perceiving that aspect of the practice, where it's just more natural. That's what it is. And the mind is very connected and collected. And it's happening in the mind. Also, I often space the concentration in the body, like, oh, where is it now, right? <laughs> in the breath, in the body sensations, or, and it's really the quality of the mind itself that is stabilizing, meaning quality of awareness. That's what really enables um, wisdom to happen. This is again Achancha. He says, normally the untrained mind is full of worries and anxieties. So when a bit of concentration arises in practice, you easily become attached to it, mistaking states of tranquility for the end of meditation. Sometimes you may even think you have put an end to lust, greed, or hatred, only to be overwhelmed by them later on. (laughs) Actually, it is worse to be caught in calmness or concentration than to be stuck in agitation. Because at least you will want to escape from agitation, whereas you are very content to remain in calmness and no go any further. When extraordinary, clear, blissful states arise from insight practice, do not cling to them. Although this tranquility has a sweet taste, it too must be seen as impermanent unsatisfactory, and empty. Absorption is not what the Buddha found essential in meditation. Practice without thought of attaining absorption or any special state. Just know whether the mind is calm, concentrated, or not. And if so, whether a little or a lot. In this way, it will develop on its own. To concentrate is like turning on the switch. And wisdom is the resulting light. I love that. Without the switch, there is no light. But we should not waste our time playing with the switch. Likewise, concentration is the empty bowl and wisdom is the food that fills it and makes the meal. So it's easy to become attached to worldly, sensual pleasures. We all know that, you know, how much we like sense pleasure. The next piece where we easily get attached, and especially on long, intensive retreats, if the mind is kind of calm and tranquil, 
It's to want. And if it's not happening, then it's craving for meditative states, right? Really experiences. How much do we want them? They're not the end of the path. Don't waste your time trying to get experiences because it's not about experiences. And if they happen, great. They'll pass. Them too. So practicing with a lightness of heart. And definitely concentration will emerge. Trust that. Trust that with the continuity of your dedicated practice. There is a possibility of encountering that quality of stability, of steadiness, of just collectedness of heart and mind. Being really curious for the totality of our experience. And when I say totality, it's the totality. (laughs) Because there's absolutely no mind state or bodily sensation that can't reveal the truth. Everything is equal to the light of awareness and wisdom. Everything is equal. No preference. Me, I, small me, wants this, doesn't want that, judges this and judges that. But just notice. Notice how me, I, contracts around separating experiences. It's completely part of the process. And to be able to meet that more and more, there's definitely a need for ease, comfort, relaxation. Not more striving, not more contraction, not more tension. From having heard a number of you, there's enough of striving. You're doing great. So relax. (laughs) Even if it's unpleasant, you're doing great. Can we hear that? The third factor is equanimity. And there's no time for it because it's 8.30. But I'm just going to say just a few words because I intended to speak of equanimity next time. It's such an important um, piece of the practice, and it's, I don't want to rush it, so I'll um, really dedicate a whole talk to equanimity, linked to sensitivity, because I think that equanimity really emerges from sensitivity. It's a bit what I talked about tonight. This is from the early Buddhist songs, the Theragata, just a flavor of equanimity. If your mind becomes firm like a rock and no longer shakes, in a world where everything is shaking, your mind will be your greatest friend. 
and suffering will not come your way. Equanimity is exactly what will enable wisdom. It's that quality of non-reactivity, of no preference. And we've all tasted this, even if there's glimpses, really very short moments. We wouldn't be here. (laughs) And we wouldn't come back on retreat if there wasn't that quality that we can experience directly. It's quite palpable, beautiful quality of heart and mind. And I'd like to end with a teaching from Buddha Dasa on the seven factors of awakening. And it's a wonderful way to be down to earth with these factors of awakening. You know, we think maybe they're really faraway states. And he definitely doesn't say that in his teaching, which I'll share. He says, plowing the fields with the factors of awakening. Much of Achan Buddha Dasa's teaching involved applying the teachings to ordinary life, just like Utajaniya. Saito Utajaniya, excuse me. His thesis was that the point of being a Buddhist is to live without suffering, and not just out in some cave or on a meditation retreat or in the monastery but in the midst of whatever we're doing. And the way to live without suffering is to transform whatever we're doing. Whether plowing the rice fields, brushing your teeth, doing the dishes, into a practice of the path. He was grounded in his environment, so he would often talk about the seven factors of awakening in very colloquial terms. During his lifetime, the Thai farmers in the neighborhood of Swan Mok Monastery were still using water buffaloes for plowing their fields. They hardly do that anymore due to economic changes, and there's not much rice farming there anymore, but it was different in the old days. He would say to the villagers, for a farmer to plow his fields, he needs to use the seven factors of awakening. First of all, you have to be very aware of what you're doing. You have to be mindful of your buffalo, and you have to be mindful of the plow. If the plow goes too deep, it gets stuck. If it's too shallow, it doesn't do any good. You have to be mindful of where to turn, of what signals you are giving the buffalo, and a host of other factors. And not only mindful, but you need to be constantly investigating while you are plowing the field with the water buffalo. The mind has to be alert in checking things out as you go, examining the quality of the soil, the level of moisture, the state of the buffalo, the location of obstacles. You have to be learning in the process. You have to be learning in the process. You have to put energy 
or effort into it, both physical and mental energy. Without energy, you may space out and get lax. If your buffalo is a good one, he may just keep going for a while. But some buffaloes are naughty. (laughs) But some buffaloes are naughty, as are horses and mules. And if they discern any slackness in your hold, they'll take advantage of it. (laughs) You also need a certain amount of satisfaction in what you're doing, whether we're plowing a field or practicing meditation. Anything can be boring or burdensome if we don't find satisfaction in it. Or it can be fun, in a dharmic sense, interesting, rewarding. (laughs) We're better able to pursue what we find satisfying in a wholesome way. And the satisfaction will bring with it a state of calm. If we're plowing our field, but we're agitated physically, we'll annoy or startle the buffalo. If our mind's agitated, it'll interfere with some of the other factors. It is easier to be present whether plowing the field or doing meditation practice, when calm. When the mind settles down, it naturally becomes more focused. The forces that agitate and distract the mind become eliminated, and it is easier for the mind to remain settled upon a single task. Both the farmer and the buffalo need to be undistracted if the field is to get plowed before dark. When all these factors are present, and they mutually reinforce one another, the mind gains the ability to just watch over and keep things on track. The effort becomes effortless, so to speak. Equanimity is like that, when you're completely in balance, and yet you have some momentum. You just don't make any more mistakes, and the work just appears to move forward on its own. This is how the seven bojangas, factors of awakening, can work together to turn any activity of daily life into a rewarding practice of progressing on the path of awakening. Let's sit for just a second. May the bojangas, the factors of awakening, emerge and support your practice. And may all the beneficial qualities that emerge and the fruits of your practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings everywhere in all planes of existence. 